Innocence, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. And so we've come to cash this check, yes. a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom yes. and the security of justice. That was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his famous I Have a Dream speech speaking about the debt that this nation owes African Americans. Welcome to the Reparations 101 episode of Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and we are bringing you this episode at an amazing and rare moment of racial reckoning in America. Across the political and racial spectrum, people are standing up and speaking out about black lives, justice, and equality, from lifelong black freedom fighters to other people of color who see the parallels and connections and intersections of their own movements with the black freedom struggle, to white allies looking for ways to take a stand and make a meaningful difference. The phrases systemic and historical racism have suddenly, shockingly to me, become mainstream. Even Walmart, yes, Walmart, issued a statement recently saying it was working, quote, to help replace the structures of systemic racism and build in their place frameworks of equity and justice that solidify our commitment to the belief that, without question, black lives matter. Close quote. That's Walmart, y'all. So in this episode, we're going to take advantage of this moment of widespread wokeness to push the conversation about black lives to a deeper, more fundamental, and possibly more uncomfortable level. Specifically, we're going to dive into the racial wealth gap in general and begin to broach the controversial topic of reparations. And most specifically, why one significant and strategic thing you can do in this moment is to push Congress to act now to pass H.R. 40, the bill to establish a commission to study the legacy of slavery and to make recommendations about possible remedies, including reparations. So to guide us through this sometimes confusing and always controversial topic, I'm joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. How are you? And how are we going to navigate this topic? Hi, Steve. You're right. Many people do find this uh, topic of reparations challenging, uncomfortable, and What's so fascinating is I remember now what now feels like so long ago, which was just this past January, just seven months ago, when we were all like sitting around you know, our meeting table and talking about the news, and that was during the Democratic presidential nomination campaign and race, when almost all of the Democratic presidential nominees were one by one, remember, coming out and giving media interviews and saying, yes, I'm for basically some version of reparations or looking into it or open to it. And we were just, our minds were blown. We just couldn't believe what we were witnessing. So still, unfortunately, the topic still does make a lot of people uncomfortable, including a lot of progressives and Democrats. And because we know that sometimes humor can make these type of topics that are elephants in the room easier to talk about, I'm going to play this clip by Trevor Noah. Here he is talking about reparations on The Daily Show a year ago. Let's talk about slavery. No, white people, come back! (laughs) Even today, the topic of slavery still brings up so many hot-button issues. Racism, Confederate statues, and lately, reparations. Should America compensate the descendants of slaves? For a long time, reparations were considered a radical idea. 
but recently it's become a lot more mainstream, you know? Sort of like how we used to think hitchhiking was a crazy idea, but now we have a rating system for it and an app, and we're like, yeah, it's fine. Jake didn't murder me, five stars. So I love that opening, and I played it a few times because it made me laugh so hard when he goes, no, white people come back. Because as soon as people mention reparations, <laughs> a lot of white people just run quickly in the other direction. So Steve, as you and I were talking about planning this episode, we decided we'd approach our discussion on reparations like we're in a class. And that's why we're calling this episode Reparations 101, which, by the way, I think would make an awesome class, a very essential class that everybody in this country should take. And so, again, if we're going to talk about the history of slavery in this country and how to move forward and toward justice, there's a lot to unpack there. And we're going to break up today's episode into two segments. So first, we're going to ask and approach the question, does the United States owe black people in this country anything? And if so, why? And secondly, what is to be done to move this issue forward in general? And in talking about that, we will also talk about H.R. 40. Again, this is the bill to create a commission to examine slavery and its legacy and to develop reparations proposals for African Americans. And because these are such meaty topics, we would like to hear from some real uh, academic expertise. That's why we're going to pull in our doctor, Dr. Julie Martinez Ortega, and we'll call her and see if we can get Julie on the line. for Dr. Martinez Ortega. Hi, y'all. Hi, Julie. How are you doing? I'm doing great. You ready to dive into some tough topics? Sure, let's do it. All right. Julie, we're going to approach today's episode like a class and guess at the front of the class, Professor Phillips <laughs> will be di helping us dive into a tough topic, which is talking about reparations. And because some of the best classes use stories to illustrate their point and get the point across to the students, Steve, I know you had a story you wanted to share. So, Professor, take the floor. <laughs> so, it's definitely going to sound, I think, probably weird to our listeners under a certain age, uh, probably under my age. Um, others may find it nostalgic. So, the story is a reimagining of the Beverly Hillbillies the popular TV show from the 1960s. Come and listen to my story about a man named Jed. A poor mountaineer barely kept his family fed. And then one day he was shooting at some food and up through the ground come a bubbling crude. Totally iconic theme song. <laughs> so to recap, the plot here is that a white guy named Jed is walking along in Texas, shoots his hunting rifle, misses his target, but accidentally strikes the ground and strikes oil. And then Jed and his family, who were previously poor, are suddenly millionaires. And they move to Beverly Hills and hijinks ensue as they try to fit in with the rich and famous. And it was one of the most popular shows in the 60s and also one of my favorite shows when I was a child growing up too, I will admit to that. But in my reimagining, the story starts out the same, with Jed walking along, then he shoots his hunting rifle and accidentally strikes oil. Except in this telling, the oil is on someone else's property. It's a family, let's call that family the natives. And the land that it is on is called native land. But Jed knows how valuable that oil is and he wants the oil. So one night he gets his brothers who all have guns and then they one night do a sneak attack on the native family killing them. And then they just move into that house and claim that native land as their own. 
But then they soon discover it's very hard work to build and operate an oil drill to get the oil out of the ground. In order to sell it to make money, you've got to get it out. And they just don't want to work that hard. So Jed and his brothers again take their guns and they make another raid on a neighboring town. We'll call that town Africa. So Jed and his brothers go into Africa, burst into the first house they come upon, their guns drawn, and kidnap an entire family. We'll call that family the Blacks. So Jed brings the Blacks to the native land, puts them in chains and shackles, and forces them to build and operate an oil well. And that oil well makes Jed and his family enormously wealthy. And he and his family do, in fact, move to Beverly Hills. But the Blacks are kept in bondage and servitude, continuing to operate that oil well. And they have to do so under the watch of armed guards employed by Jed. Eventually, years down the line, Jed dies and leaves his millions and his profitable businesses to his children. Children who were born after the family moved to Beverly Hills and were not alive at the time the Blacks were kidnapped. But they've nonetheless benefited tremendously from the wealth created by those oil wells. And one day, a newspaper reporter is doing a feature story on Jed Jr., and asked Jed whether his family should be spending some of their riches to help the black children go to college, buy home, start businesses. But Jed Jr. says, I personally didn't have anything to do with what happened to that family. And that was a long time ago. I don't owe them anything. And that, my friends, is where we find ourselves today. <laughs> wow. The end. <laughs> But it's not the end. No, I, I yeah. <laughs> now that that really recaptures the essence of of what went down, right? I mean, it's sort of. Um, I think it can get really complicated, and you know, some of those too long didn't read sort of things when you go through all the details of what happened historically. But that, you know, is a good little summary, right, of of what happened. I think it's worth thinking through how we use that kind of device to really explain this stuff to the, the younger generation and folks who, who are grappling with, you know, why would we do reparations? And, and that very question that Jeb's son raises, right? Like, I didn't do that. Why should I be held responsible? And I'll just add that, you know, to make the story fully accurate, Jed's family would have actually have to have destroyed all the evidence of one kidnapping the blacks and killing the native the native family, and then run around basically denying that the theft ever took place, right? And I think that's one of the things that made it so just revolting for me that when I saw Trump doing his rally in Tulsa, you know, just last month, what made it so offensive was the history of the Tulsa riots and Black Wall Street that was destroyed. And really the history of that destruction was as much as possible swept under the rug for folks. And, you know, obviously we don't have time to go into it all here, but definitely recommend people check out the podcast um, post reports by the Washington Post, which is hosted by Martine Powers, an African-American woman. And the entire June 19th podcast this year is a conversation with Michelle Norris about what happened there in Tulsa on that day. And in a nutshell, Tulsa had one of the most economically successful African-American communities in the country at that point in time when the whites burned it down in 1921. And it was, for all uh, intents and purposes, it was, a, it was a race massacre that was then covered up. Thanks, Julie. I just am learning so much listening to you and have been learning so much through different types of programs like the one you mentioned um, by Post Reports. And it's just amazing to me how much history the general American public is never taught. We were never taught in school or college or for those of us who 
you know, for those of us who went to college or grad school beyond, we just so much of our history and so much of what took place, we were never, ever told. And so here I want to share a clip from Post Reports talking about the erasure of that history. And that's the problem, right, is that when you talk about the tortured history of of this city when it comes to race, so many people don't even know that that tortured history exists. They still don't know how many people died. They still have not been able to quantify the, the loss of income, the loss of property. And it's hard to put that together because the history was expunged. There was actually a concerted effort to erase the history. Bodies were buried, but for years, newspaper archives were removed, police logs were removed. So it's been very hard for historians to go back and piece together what happened. Yeah, you know, the other thing about that, because I remember it was surprising to me when I was writing the book, and I was trying to see if we could document who were the current families who had held slaves and had benefited. And it was like surprisingly difficult, if not impossible, to actually do that. Right, but you would have assumed the plantations were so big, it'd be all like, oh yeah, that was the Johnson family down the street. And you would know generations, but that record is very much largely lost to history and not by accident. Okay, thanks again for that wonderful bedtime story. That's how I was listening to it. I was picturing it being one of these kind of spoof children's books, but it's the terror and horror of American history. Or would it be, uh, what was the, go the F to sleep? So yeah, exactly. Give us, like Give us the F uh, I reparations. Actually, I think your book would do very well, your children's book cause a lot of nightmares, but also a lot of wokeness. But thanks for sharing that. And it was, re- it was helpful. And that kind of reframing, when you tell it that way, you just realize, wow, that history is our history. And the reality is the one we're living in. And the reason why I said the end is because how many Americans just feel like that's it, the end, mm-hmm. like, this is the story. This is our, you know, everything. We just go forward from there. We don't have to look back. So there have been, though, recently a lot of mainstream pronouncements about how now is the time to fight systematic inequality and anti-Black racism. And due to the protests and the worldwide movement calling for the addressing of anti-Black racism and fighting against anti-Black police brutality. But we are only now, as a country and a society, really starting to grapple with what that means. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones, who had also come up with the idea for and spearheaded the amazing New York Times multimedia project 1619, which is a project on the history of slavery and modern implications, she recently had an excellent article, also in the New York Times, that ran on June 30th in the New York Times magazine titled, What is Owed? Again, it's an amazing piece of writing, and her use of language is so powerful. It also was an excellent mini-history curriculum. Speaking of Reparations 101, it was uh, a type of curriculum and resource that you can really get a lot of learning out of in one piece. And in that piece, she writes, we are left with a choice. Will this moment only feel different, or will it actually be different? It is time for this country to pay its debt. And I just thought those lines are so powerful because like her, I'm one of those people who have been wondering about this moment, maybe with a bit of a jaded eye. We've talked about this before, which is that, is this just going to be that kind of moment where it comes and goes and we'll look back and say, oh yeah, remember that? That was great. That brief moment where everybody was protesting and um, talking about Black Lives Matters, but wondering what really came out of it. So Steve, let me just ask you directly, does America owe black people? And if so, why? The short answer is yes. 
And on one level, it really is as simple as the story I told about Jed and the blacks. America became a wealthy nation as a result of slave labor performed by black people. There's a great book called Empire of Cotton by Harvard professor Sven Beckert, and it breaks down in great detail the economic importance of the work done by black folks in southern fields picking cotton. And in his book, he writes, quote, it was on the back of cotton and thus on the backs of slaves that the U.S. economy ascended in the world. That's his quote, right? So then he has the different facts that he actually breaks down in there, right? So that's showing that more than half of all American exports in the 1800s consisted of cotton. And then if you think about it, cotton has no value in the field. It only has value in the factory where it can be made into clothes and textiles and sold across the country and across the world. But to get from the fields to the factory required back-breaking manual labor of black people bent over picking cotton balls off of these plants for hours on end, day after day. And before cotton, it was tobacco. And historians have also shown that the very first English settlers who came here in 1619 in Virginia quickly learned how hard it was to pick tobacco, but also how valuable it was. And so that's why they imported Africans to do the work. It was too hard for them, but the profits were too big to ignore. So it's well documented that the wealth of this country was created by black people held in slavery and working for free. That's the first point. The second historical reality, and this was much more obscured and hidden from the public, and really actually it was when I was writing the book and Julia was pointing me in this direction to document what had happened since the end of slavery. So the second reality is the role of the government through action and inaction in elevating white people and excluding people of color in those 155 years since the end of the Civil War. So the New Deal was a massive government program effort to try to lift the nation out of the Great Depression through extraordinary federal programs. But the New Deal explicitly and intentionally omitted domestic workers and farm workers, professions dominated by African-Americans and Latinos. And that was the point of those exclusions. And then after World War II, when large numbers of Americans came back from the war, many, many families had been affected by people going off to war, the government passed the GI Bill, which handed billions of dollars out to people to, which created the modern middle class. But a big part of the GI Bill and the New Deal was redlining, explicit and completely legal racial discrimination in home loans, and with home ownership being one of the main drivers of wealth accumulation in our country and in our society. So the government documents from the, that time period say explicitly that in making loans, this is a quote, if a neighborhood is to retain stability, it is necessary that properties shall continue to be occupied by the same social and racial classes. That's government document guiding who got this government largesse. And so what happened in this country and what nobody likes to talk about and again, it's important, this is after slavery, is that the United States federal government handed billions of dollars to white people and not to black people or other people of color. So that's the second point. And then the third point, which I didn't even fully appreciate until I was writing my book, we know about Brown versus Board of Education ending segregation. It only ended segregation in schools. It didn't end it in employment and in housing. So racial discrimination and pro-white hiring and promotions in corporate America were completely legal and acceptable for the hundred years after the end of the, end of the Civil War. You're only outlawed with the Civil Rights Act in 1964, the year I was born. I'm not that old. So by the time discrimination was outlawed, all the good jobs were taken, all the top slots in corporate America had been reserved for whites, 
completely legally and with the full support of the United States government. So yes, black people created this country's wealth, then were intentionally excluded from the largest efforts to address economic inequality. That's why we have a racial wealth gap, and that's why this country owes black people not just a metaphorical debt, but a very real financial one. I just want to repeat that line for the people in the back. Black people created this country's wealth. I just, I just, I just wish I want to like wear a T-shirt that says that'll put up billboards and, and first of all, just see how many people go crazy. That's right. <laughs> Re- reading that line, but it's a fact, and you know that's that's what we're talking about today. And thanks, Steve, for that history. And I'd like to remind our listeners that Steve covers this in his book, Brown Is the New White, and specifically he has a chapter titled What is Justice? And in that chapter, there's a section titled Why Do White People Have All the Money? And that's, uh, by the way, I also want another t-shirt that says Why Do White People Have All the Money? And a big billboard and see how many people go crazy over that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to, I'm not going to be able to, well, assuming I were able to walk around with you, <laughs> Charlene, I don't know if I would be given your uh, if any If any time is right for us to be wearing those t-shirts, we could try doing it now. Walk around Walmart, see how they feel about that. All right, on that note, um, let me just add that what Steve laid out is great outline of what's happened in the past, but of course, implicit bias and racial discrimination continued to this day, right? So there are multiple studies that have shown this. Probably one of the most well-known was by the team at the NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research, called Are Emily and Greg More Employable Than Lakeisha and Jamal? And that's a study that was done back in 2003. And what they did was they first used birth certificate records to find what were sort of considered the whitest and blackest names. And then what they did is they took the exact same resumes, but switched the names on them to see if it made a difference in who even got an interview, right? And they found that Emily and Gray got 50% more callbacks for interviews than Lakeisha and Jamal, who was surprised about that. There have also been other studies that show similar results. This is not a one-off at all. This is just one of the clearest cut examples. Okay, thanks, Julie. I would also like to address some of the arguments against reparations, against there being a debt owed, just because we know those arguments are out there, so I'll just say them out loud. So one of the things people say is, for example, people should just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Do we love that? We love that that saying, that metaphor that's somehow become part of like the American narrative as if that's really what's happening. But but people say, you know, people, aka black people, should just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And I just want to say, unfortunately, this is exactly the kind of thinking that is unfortunately quite prevalent among many Asian Americans, especially but not limited to my parents' generation of Asian American immigrants who have come here, college educated, many of them post the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965. And unfortunately, because a lot of them don't really know the history of this country and understand systematic racism, they say, well, we did it. Why can't they. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the bootstraps idea it sounds great in theory, but in actuality, it's nearly impossible to catch up, right? In uh, the last podcast episode, y'all had our friend Stacy Layton on as a guest. And I don't know if you know this, Charlene, but Steve, Stacy, and I, we all went to Stanford together. And Stacy, as you know, is, is white, and her dad's a doctor. And so they're both in the Air Force, but my dad was an Air Force mechanic as opposed to a doctor. 
And we've never actually talked about it, but I'm sure that Stacy and I sort of represent that racial wealth gap that Steve's trying to frame up, right, with his examples. So if you think about it, the average white family has $171,000 in assets, whereas the average black family has only 17,000 in assets, so a tenth, less than a tenth, right? And it's about the same for Latinos. And let's just say that Stacy's family had that exact amount in assets and my family had that exact amount in assets. And if when we both started college together, each of our families put all of those assets into the stock market. And my family happened to be really good at picking stocks and ours performed twice as well as her family's. My family would still be way, way behind even after 28 years, right? And even with investments doing twice as well, you know, which would be great bootstraps, you still are going to have an incredibly hard time to ever catch up, right? When you start out that far behind. Yeah, that's that's a really good example. There are these two other questions that I want to see if we can address. And first is the question of, well, it's an argument that goes, that happened so long ago. Why are we still talking about that? Why would we address that now? That just happened so long ago. That sentiment was expressed last year, just last year, by the leader of the U.S. Senate, Mitch McConnell. So let's take a listen at what he had to say. I I don't think reparations for something that happened 150 years ago for whom none of us currently living are responsible is a good idea. Uh, We've tried to deal with our original sin of slavery by fighting a civil war, by passing uh, landmark civil rights legislation. Uh, We've elected an African-American president. I I think we're always a work in progress in this country. Uh, but no one currently alive was responsible for that. So, Steve, what do you say to that? Well, the writer Ta-Nehisi Coates, right, responded to that the next day. He was testifying before Congress on H.R. 40, and he's, to refresh everyone's memory, right, he's one of the champions around really getting this issue of reparations before the public in this more certainly recent wave, like way back in 2014. He wrote this article in The Atlantic, The Case for Reparations. So he was testifying before Congress, and he spoke directly to what Connell said. He's much more eloquent than I am, so let's listen to what he had to say. We grant that Mr. McConnell was not alive for Appomattox, but he was alive for the electrocution of George Stinney. He was alive for the blinding of Isaac Woodward. He was alive to witness kleptocracy in his native Alabama and a regime premised on electoral theft. Majority Leader McConnell cited civil rights legislation yesterday, as well he should, because he was alive to witness the harassment, jailing, and betrayal of those responsible for that legislation by a government sworn to protect them. He was alive for the redlining of Chicago and the looting of black homeowners of some $4 billion. Victims of that plunder are very much alive today. I am sure they'd love a word with the majority leader. So his testimony is only five minutes, and I really recommend people listening to the whole thing. And again, we'll link, we'll link to that in, uh, in our show notes as well. Yeah, and another point that people don't appreciate is that reparations are not historically unprecedented, right? So other countries and even our own have already gone through this process. So most notably Germany post the Holocaust, but also over here in the Americas, Brazil, which engaged in all sorts of really interesting, creative attempts at reparations and directly with former slaves in their country as well. 
And then right here in the U.S., in, back in 1988, I remember this happening, when the U.S. paid reparations to redress the harm from the internment of Japanese Americans. That's right. That's a good reminder. I think a lot of people either don't know about that or forget about it and just think that reparations in our country, uh, that this would be the very first time. Well, it was a, it was a big fight. That's why Julia and I know about it. So a lot of our Asian American and Japanese American, we were in college, that was the redress and reparations. That was, the, that was like a multi-year, if not multi-decade fight to actually mm -hmm. get that. But they did. And the United States did it. Reagan signed, uh, signed it. Yeah. Great. So again, I wanted to continue with some of these questions, what I kind of call devil's advocate questions that come up when conversations around reparations are engaged. So one of the other questions that people have is why just black people, right? If there are other groups in our country, in our history that were wronged, why not include them or also give them reparations? Uh, hasn't there been discrimination against all sorts of other groups? And that is a very important question. And I didn't realize I was thinking about this, just how much it annoyed me until I really began to think about the answer to it. So first, yes, absolutely. This country was founded on the idea that this would be a white nation. The very first citizenship law from 1790 says to become a citizen, you have to be a free white person. And that was dominant law up until 1965, really. So the idea was this would be a white country. And through force, violence, and bloodshed, the country's leaders have forged just such a nation by attacking, oppressing, exploiting, and stealing from those who stood in their way. The land was stolen from the Native Americans and the indigenous people who are written into the Declaration of Independence as, quote, merciless Indian savages. And then from coast to coast, Native Americans were routinely murdered by the U.S. government, the whole Western expansion, Trail of Tears, etc. What we now know is the Southwest, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, California, used to be Mexico until the United States Army violently seized that land, killing thousands of Mexicans and Tejanos in the process. And then interstate commerce in this country, part of the flourishing of the growth of the U.S. as an as a economic powerhouse was because of the railroads that connected the country and all of the markets across the country. But it's very dangerous to build railroads. And so that's why the country imported Chinese workers to build those railroads and facilitate the economic ex expansion. So those are just some of the examples of how American prosperity was made possible by the sacrifices and struggles of different groups of people of color. And they should each independently and thoroughly be analyzed, investigated, and atoned for. But the notion that we should throw all of the non-white oppression into one bill is outrageously wrong on at least two counts. So first, it does a disservice to each respective group's experience by lumping it all together. We need to have thoughtful, well-financed, rigorous, distinct studies and plans for what happened to each specific group. In medicine, you don't lump all diseases together as in the, here's healthy and then not healthy and then you lump everything all together. Heart disease is different from cancer. Within cancer, blood diseases are different from solid tumors. You have to study and understand each distinctly in order to develop effective plans and treatments if you're taking it seriously. The second problem with lumping everyone together is that the premise is shockingly offensive when you think about it. So the premise is that this is it. This is your one shot to deal with anything and everything outside the norm of America being a white nation. Biden did that. He was asked about reparations. He gave this throwaway line trying to make it look like he was woke and saying, and Native Americans, you have to include Native Americans. If he really cared about Native Americans, he would not relegate their issues to the side. He would announce 
a decade-long effort to address the centuries-long oppression that has flowed from white nationalism in this country. And you would have robust, high-profile initiatives tackling each group's situation. So underlying this notion that you'll have one bill is the mindset that, yes, we have to pay some attention to what these uppity folks are saying, but then we'll quickly get back to the real issues. Well, these are the real issues. We have to reimagine and then rebuild the country so that it is truly a democracy of color. And that should permeate every aspect in the United States government for at least the next decade or two. And the first step, 401 years later, is looking at the African-American experience. Now, 401 years later, here we are. And still so many people just are sitting on the fence. Like, I just think about if reparations is this this fence, like a metaphor of the fence. So many people say, I still don't know if we should do anything about it. <laughs> There's so many people on that fence, even though a lot of those are people who do know the history of our country. So let's say, Professor, first of all, thank you very much. <laughs> so I've learned a lot today in today's class. And I think I'm ready for the test. No, but really, if I was somebody who was not convinced and asking those questions, I think you've done a really good job convincing me that there is a debt and that this country does owe black people. So let's move on next to talk about what can be done about it. So what do you recommend, Steve? So first, and we have a historic window of opportunity in July for this, is we can pass H.R. 40, House Resolution 40, which, again, which would create a federal commission to lead a formal process for the nation of education, study, and recommendations about what is owed. And so we're making a big push to try to get this bill voted out of the House this month, and we need everyone's help with that. That's right. And first, I wanted to say, let's step back and, Steve, let's give folks and listeners some background on what H.R. 40 is, because I realize not everybody is that familiar with it. There's a coalition of groups who've been working to try to advance the bill. And one of the people active in that effort is Danielle Solomon, VP of Race and Ethnicity Policy at the Center for American Progress. When we were in D.C. in January, earlier this year, again, back when you could travel, we had a chance to sit down with Danielle and talk to her about H.R. 40. Here, I'm going to share a brief clip of that interview where she describes H.R. 40. Yeah, H.R. 40 um, is a congressional bill that would create a commission to look at the vestiges, but also the institution of slavery. Um, this bill is really about fact gathering, data gathering, um, and I like to talk about it in the sense of it provides education to the American public. Um, what I think we all know or are learning now is that we have all been sold uh, a false sense of history. And I think this bill's intention is really about providing the American people as well as the United States government with the information they need to make an educated decision about how they should uh, provide restitution for the harms done uh, out of slavery. So that's what H.R. 40 is, but the Democrats don't control the Senate. We had heard McConnell say he doesn't support it. Steve, why do you think it's so important to get it out of the House? Well, we've been trying for 41 years, and this is our chance. Right? So John Conyers, the congressman from the late congressman from Detroit, first introduced this bill back in 1979, and he's been introducing it every year since, up until he, he left Congress recently, and then uh, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee picked it up um, out of Houston. 
Conyers couldn't get any co-sponsors for a long time. In 2014, there were zero co-sponsors. And now there are over 130 co-sponsors. As we've been discussing, systemic racism, the treatment of black people is on the agenda like never before. And so where a lot of Congress people were scared to approach this type of topic, it's now in the, in the milieu, it's in the atmosphere, and the conditions are changing. So this is the moment. Second, it is critical that it be a top-level, high-priority, official government project. It's going to properly educate the nation and lay the foundation for a meaningful public policy agenda. So passage by the House elevates the issue and makes it much more official and important. And then third, as we discussed in the last episode, Trump is in trouble. And the Republican control of the Senate is in real peril. So it's a very real possibility that Democrats will take control of the Senate and that come uh, January, Chuck Schumer will be the head of the Senate. And he has said that he's supportive of the bill. So if we can cross this Rubicon now, get it passed out of the House, that makes it much easier to then pass it again in January and get it passed that time by the Senate, and then we'll be on our way finally to a national conversation and reckoning for the 400-year history of this country's treatment of black people. And one of the things people don't realize is that there actually already is motion and momentum for reparations in other parts of the country already, right? So just a couple of weeks ago in California, the State Assembly passed a bill that establishes a task force to study and prepare recommendations on how to give reparations to African Americans. And over in New Jersey, the legislature has a bill to create a task force that would study reparations. And also Angela Blackwell, our friend and the founder of PolicyLink, had an incredible op-ed in the New York Times pushing banks to not wait on legislation, right? But telling them to just literally put their money where their mouths are now. And she called on banks to cancel consumer debt for black customers and to provide interest-free mortgages to African Americans. That really, I mean, the terms of the debate have been expanded, and we're, we're, as Steve said, we're in a moment right now where so many more things are possible than ever before. Definitely, and I just wanted to jump in and say, uh, it's, but it's really going to be about whether or not we take advantage of this moment. And I'm glad that you mentioned that piece by Angela, Angela Blackwell. It's a, it's a great piece and definitely worth checking out. Again, it ran in the New York Times on June 26th, and it's titled, Banks Should Face History and pay reparations. Okay, Steve, so what is our call to action? So at least three things, right? So first, you can sign the Democracy in Color petition calling on Congress to pass H.R. 40. And then you can share that petition in your circles, post on social media, email to your friends and family, etc. So we'll link to it in the show notes, and it's on, on the Democracy in Color website. Second, you can contact the Democrats in the House who have not yet signed on as co-sponsors. As I said, there are more than 130 co-sponsors, but there are nearly 100 Democrats who have not signed on yet. Basically, they're too afraid. So we have a list on the Rising Color website that you can link to to see who has signed on and who has not. So look at the list, pick a member, especially if the member from your district where you live is on that list, and then start harassing them. Call them, email, demand an answer. And then third is educate people in your network. Send the Nicole Hannah-Jones piece around. I posted it on Facebook, and one of my friends texted me to thank me for that. She said that was really helpful for her to educate people in her network. And you can share this podcast episode as well. We we tried to make this Reparations 101, so it would be an educational piece. 
And Steve, I had to laugh when you said start harassing them because I could just imagine people being like, you know, Steve Phillips asked me to call you and harass you. (laughs) (laughs) And he'll be like, another one of these Steve Phillips people calling to harass me. But yes, call them, harass them. Uh, And again, HR 40 is just the study, study of reparations or solutions. And it's not just, you know, I think people get it confused with uh, this is it. This is the bill for reparations. So simply to get the House to pass a resolution on the study of it. And I also wanted to um, suggest to listeners for them to share your column. Steve has an excellent column in the nation that went live on July 8th. And its theme is, what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for, right? And it breaks down the case for why action is needed right now on HR 40. And that's, that's a lot. That's a lot of uh, different things you can do to make a difference right now. And we'll make some progress on this. I do hope that everybody enjoyed our class today on Reparations 101. Yeah, well, that's I. Had, well, thank you, Julie, for joining us as well. But I did. I told Julie when she got her PhD that it was a collective asset of the movement, so we would all be availing ourselves of the academic credential. Group group PhD. Yes. Can I? Um, I want it. I want that, and then I can tell my parents. <laughs> They'll be so happy that I finally I'll got share my PhD. It with you. <laughs> right. uh, but as Charlene said, we do hope you found this valuable. And if you did, please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets. If you haven't already, please join our mailing list by going to democracyandcolor.com. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, show me the money and keep the faith.